Episode 177 is about to come to you, my friends, of coming up next. But before I get into my interview with Grammy Award winning music writer and producer Sam Bash, are you subscribed to Coming Up Next, the podcast? It's really, you know, it's so simple to do and it's going to streamline your listening experience. Just head to comingupnext.com.au where you're going to find links to whichever platform you listen to it on. Hit subscribe, maybe leave a rating, and then I'm going to bring the episodes to you each and every week, like this week's interview, which I'm going to bring to you right now. Guaranteed to go yarding. Yeah. I can't stop until I make 
Hey friends, it's another episode of Coming Up Next, which can only mean one thing. It's another episode of Coming Up Next. I'm Alistair Marks. Thanks for tuning in to my show. This is the weekly podcast ramble about uh, how creatives or with creatives who've created a life of their own design, speaking with uh, people from all over the world. I'm still in Melbourne. It's a lovely summer's afternoon uh, and... I really wanted to uh, say thank you to my guest from last week, to Michelle Law, who came on the show. Michelle has uh, an amazing story of uh, her career as a a writer. Um, She's got some fantastic projects coming up, and if you haven't listened to it, you can find it at comingupnext.com.au, along with the back catalogue of podcast rambles. I've got some uh, very exciting prospects coming my way for the year 2019. But uh, I'm going to keep that under wraps until there's actually something to, uh, to tell you about. But uh, suffice to say, there's always an exciting kind of uh, evolution as we get to the end of the year and start to plan for the next year. Sam Barsh is my guest this week. Uh, Sam is a, uh, a music writer, producer and player. Uh, you may know a few of the uh, people he's collaborated with namely Aloe Black and uh, Kendrick Lamar, just to name a few. He played keyboard on Kendrick Lamar's song I, which received a Grammy for Best Rap Performance and Best Rap Song. He also played keys on the song Institutionalized, which uh, was on Grammy Award-winning album To Pimp a Butterfly. Um, I mean, he's performed with Bobby McFerrin, Boys to Men, Fred Wesley, Avishai Cohen, Bruno Mars, Debbie Friedman, Gene Simmons. The list is just kind of... Uh, Tom Jones, Ladisi, I mean, this guy, if you want to talk about being prolific, this guy uh, he kind of uh, sums it up in a sense. He's got this new project coming up, uh, which is uh, an album based on the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the US Supreme Court. We, uh, we get into that. The song you heard at the head uh, was called Rose Garden, and it features Harry Mack, Ms. 007, and Van Eyck. Uh, and at the end of the show, uh, I'm going to play another tune uh, called Three Fifths, which, is, uh, which features Mike Holden. Um, you can find lots of Sam's uh, work online uh, on the various channels. Anyway, we, uh, we get into some pretty deep technical uh, and financial stuff, actually, about what it's like to kind of forge a career as a songwriter in today's day and age in the age of streaming. We also talk about the usual philosophical musings, ramblings, etc., Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about it right now. Episode 177 of Coming Up Next with Sam Barsh. I guess it's unusual that I would approach someone to do a podcast or an interview uh, off the back of a social media post but uh, after I interviewed a mutual friend of ours Lex Sadler um, about a month ago I saw this post pop up in my in my feed that was kind of breaking down in quite um, specific terms what it means to be a songwriter in 2018 from the point of view of someone 
who's worked with some of the biggest names of all time in music. Um, so I was very interested to speak with you uh, and to kind of, I guess, get your point of view about how the music industry and specifically the kind of songwriting industry has changed over the course of your career. Um, and I guess also how you've kind of adjusted to uh, the the psychological aspect of that. The kind of one of the last things you said in in the post was, you know, it'd be like embarking on uh, an education to become a doctor, knowing that at the end of your uh, university or tertiary education, you were going to be earning, you know, a nice six sum figure per year. And then when you get there, finding out that it's actually only about 50K a year. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I, guess I, I guess I'm interested to kind of understand from your point of view where it all began and where it's, where it's come to. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll start by saying that that figure, like 50, 60 grand, that was that was like ballpark and that was just from songwriting royalties. So I do other stuff um, that pads the income. I'm not trying to like brag about my income or by any means, because some years it's definitely very low, but um, I wanted to make sure this was targeted specifically to songwriting and not to just like the music industry in general or producer fees or stuff like that. So that being said, I, t I targeted this post specifically to songwriters because I know a lot of friends that are musicians that are trying to get into the songwriting game and like they want to stop being musicians full time and they want to get into writing. Or I know a number of young songwriters that maybe are on their first publishing deal or are looking for a deal and producers too that really just have zero clue about the end result. Excuse me. A lot of people think that you write a hit and you can retire. You write one smash and you can retire. Or you write one smash, you're going to buy a house. And I just, I got a bit fed up with uh, people that on our scene, because we're all a community, you know, the people that I work closest with know what's up, but like I work with a lot of people that don't. And we're as a community of songwriters who generally are supportive of each other a lot of times we don't share information and I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm not really afraid of, uh, you know, pushing boundaries a little bit. I actually, I take like joy in seeing people that challenge norms. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this and I have no clue what's going to happen, but I've had this conversation with people privately a bunch and they're shocked and I'm like people shouldn't be shocked and people should go into it knowing that you should still write if you love it I mean I'm really not even complaining because I do this because I chose I chose the path and I've just learned as I've gone along where the money comes from what stuff to focus on you know and that you don't always care about the money you want to just make the best records you can because they can they can work for you in other ways in terms of reputation and having other people want to hire you to do a similar thing or, oh, and also they just speak like as a real artist. I mean, I take a lot of pride in the work that I've done, even if I haven't made a lot of money on it. Um, but yes, that being said, so historically, um, when I started doing songwriting 
you know, significant, just don't devoting a significant part of my time to songwriting was about the early 2000s to like 2004, I guess. Um, and I was on the road at the time with Avishai Cohen, who's an amazing bassist and band leader. So I was doing full time jazz playing. And, um, you know, when I started getting into the songwriting thing, after I stopped being on the road with him, I had a production partner, uh, Curtis Watts, still, you know, still like a brother to me, um, though we're on opposite coasts now. But so, you know, Curtis and I were just doing the songwriting thing and production super hard. All of my free time was devoted to that. And at the time, if you got, uh, you know, a song, uh, even just on an album, a hit album, you could make a lot of money because say like, you know, 50 cents album came out, his two albums came out around that time. And they, the first one sold 10 million physical copies. The other one sold 5 million just in the U S. So, you know, from that, it didn't have to be on the radio just from getting mechanical royalties. Uh, you could make good money, you know, and if you had, so, you know, relating that back to me, I've had a couple hit singles that I co-wrote, but I've had a ton of album cuts on records that were like number one on the on the Billboard 200 or like top five. I've had a lot that are on like the top five of the urban charts and Billboard, which essentially means that years ago, one at a chart position like that would be going platinum most likely, and that and be from physical sales. And even after the physical sale era was winding down and converting to online, still you'd still get paid a good mechanical royalty rate for stuff that people bought as a download. It still counted as a sale. I mean, I don't, I didn't investigate all of the exact specifics, but it was either the same rate or a tiny bit less um, for you know buying an album online versus buying physical cd and i know labels would structure different stuff differently when you look at your contracts and to um to clarify for the listeners a mechanical royalty is a royalty for a songwriter on a sale of the music and those also fall um those are now also the royalties that you get paid via streaming because it's essentially replacing a sale um, streaming on demand streaming, I should say, like Spotify, Tidal, Apple Music, um, because other online radio falls under radio, which is collected by your performance rights organization, with BMI or ASCAP, and so is commercial radio, and so is stuff that's just played in public. But an on demand stream is considered essentially a sale, except that the rate for a stream or for even, you know, hundreds or thousands of streams is just much less than a physical sale royalty. I mean, it would be significantly less, right? Yeah, definitely. But I mean, so like the RIAA considers 150 million streams of a song to be platinum and 75 million streams to be uh, gold. But if you think about it, just the basic math, and I'm just going to use like approximate stuff because I just want to say that in case there's like slight differences in the total, you know, specifics, I'm just going to use the approximates. So 
a mechanical royalty for a, a sale is nine point one cents per song. This is this physical, is a physical sale. A physical sale, exactly. Right. So, say if you were on an album, there was a hit for the, for the album, but you know, for a long period of time, you people didn't really buy singles that much in the CDs era. There was a hit on the CD. You would just buy the CD. So any song on there is getting paid that nine cents a song. Of course, you divide that by the amount of people that wrote it. So say we do the math, and um, 150 million streams is equivalent to a million sales. So we'll use a platinum song as a benchmark for this. So say you sell a million copies of a song. That will net you... times a million. Uh, 9.1 cents, so it's .091 of a dollar. Anyway, it's $91,000. Now, the going rate, we'll use the average rate for a on-demand stream, and we'll just use Spotify's average rate. Um, I'm not making them the boogeyman. I actually like Spotify, and we can talk about that a little more later, but... They're just the most used platform, and they pay little less than Apple, but more than other companies. So it's point zero 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 three seven of wow. a dollar per on-demand stream for a mechanical royalty, or point zero three seven cents. Um, so one hundred fifty million streams, a platinum song would net you. $55,000. Now, that's the entire songs. Remember that. So nowadays, one of the biggest differences um, from, you know, especially 60s and 70s to now is that there's a lot of writers on songs. An average hit record has probably three to six writers on it. You can check the credits. You can check the Billboard Hot 100. It's not that hard to see. Some of them are so crammed with the names of the writers that they're barely legible. You need a a magnifying glass. Now, the biggest difference, taking that into account, um, aside from the fact that streaming mechanical for a platinum song pays a little more than half of what it did for uh, sales mechanical, is what I mentioned before, is that people are just listening to the hit songs um, much more as opposed to the album cut. So if you have an album cut on an album that goes platinum, or gold or multi-platinum and the rubric for platinum certification for albums is different you can look it up online but it's like amount of total times the album was streamed or like uh almost the whole album by different users anyway again when you had a platinum selling album essentially every song on the album sold a million whereas now album cuts on platinum albums or albums with like a huge hit you might have a song hit song that streams 300 million 500 million times and other songs on the album streamed 10 million 12 million and so then you're talking about not very much money at all especially when you're splitting it by a bunch of writers and the myth that you write a hit song and retire or you you write a song on a hit album and retire that is just that it's it's almost in every case now a myth and it goes to catalog stuff as well you know there's people a couple people that i've talked to personally who've written hits in the past said their royalty stream 
went down about 70% into the streaming era. So now people that were making, you know, comfortable six figures a year of residuals off of hits they wrote or off of total catalog now are making a lot less money. And maybe they thought they could retire on that money, but now it's different. And it's because, you know, catalog records, catalog means stuff that's not new, used to still sell a good amount, thousands, tens of thousands, 100,000 copies a year, depending on how popular it was. And the song was re-recorded a bunch on compilations. Um, And you're also talking about worldwide. So it's a lot of people. And that's, uh, that's one of the things I wanted to dispel. One of the myths I wanted to dispel the most is that people think you write one hit, you're set. And that is not true today, except in the top, top 1%. And even then, you have to have a good percentage of that song, and you you really likely have to have multiple hit songs. And it's also worth noting that commercial terrestrial radio uh, is a must for earning money these days. That and licensing, because commercial radio still pays a good rate, and licensing music like to film and TV... That's really the best revenue stream. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've worked with, like I said before, some of the biggest names in music today, um, you know, collaborating with Aloe Black, Kendrick Lamar, Ladisi. Um, I suppose, well, I guess to peel things back even a little bit further, uh, you started out as a, a keyboard player when you were four. Is that right? Yes. I grew up in Chicago. Um, and mainly grew up right outside in a town called Wilmette, Illinois. It's just north of the city. It's uh, right next to Evanston where Northwestern University is. Um, so by the time I was in high school, I got really serious about piano when I was 16. Right. And I started playing a lot of gigs around town. Do you remember what, when, what the first time was or the first time that you did play piano? Do you remember what that experience was like? I was four, so I don't remember that well. Um, we had a like old piano in the house, and my mom asked me if I wanted to take lessons, and I said yes. I mean, I kind of remember my first teacher. She was not cool. She always like compared me to the other kid who came before me who was older than me. I mean, that really bothered my parents. I don't really remember caring, but I stopped, started again, and then, yeah, I mean, I wasn't in love with it. I would just practice my half-hour day. My mom and dad were definitely not trying to uh, have me do a career in music. They just wanted me to be involved with something. Um, but eventually I got very passionate about it. It just took a while. So that was around about the time you were sort of 16 and finishing off high school. So when I was in middle school, I got more into it, into jazz band. I really fell in love with jazz. And then that just progressed in high school. And I went to a music camp at Northwestern University after my sophomore year of high school, and that's when I got really serious. I had a teacher named Mike Coker who had gone to my high school, and I because I went to a very difficult high school. It was a public high school, but four thousand kids, um, very competitive. Seven different towns sent their kids there, and it's just hard to get good grades there. So I was like, man, how did you survive Nutrier? And also find time to practice. And he like gave me some stuff. He's like, I practiced during lunch periods because we had some practice rooms on the fourth floor of the arts part of the arts um, wing of the school. 
and he was just like, you know, you'll find find the time in times where you wouldn't be doing stuff. And he was also like, I didn't spend a ton of time doing homework. He's like, get good enough grades, but you don't have to break your ass to get straight A's. Because at that school, kids that got straight A's were either like genius level IQ or just had no life. So that's when I really got serious. And uh, I started practicing three, four hours a day my junior year and then like five, six hours a day my senior year. And I ended up going to college in uh, New Jersey at a good, really good jazz program called William Patterson University. And um, I got, a lot of good things started happening for me then. Like I got a full ride to college. I made it to the Grammy band, which is like a national. I was in the Grammy combo. It's like a national thing where they only pick like 35 kids or something. They pick a band, a big band, a choir and a combo of kids to go to the Grammys and work for 10 days and record. And it was a big deal. And I won another couple like competitions or like all state stuff. And so that's kind of convinced my parents to let me go for it, that I was good enough to try to do music. Um, and then, yeah, I started, I went to college in Jersey right outside of New York and I got into the New York scene throughout that time. And I was working you know, by the time I graduated, I was working full time doing jazz, basically. Yeah, wow, must be pretty. Uh, it's pretty incredible. I guess New York is kind of the place to to do that to really bed into a scene and start meeting people and start hustling and playing. Yeah, um, New York is the spot. I mean, it's dwindled to some extent for other styles of music now with people moving to Los Angeles, Nashville, um, Atlanta, or, you know, a lot of people I know are moving upstate New York. But for jazz, it's still the mecca that when I went there, you know, I, I moved there almost 20 years ago. It was totally the mecca it was the most competitive place um, to do jazz, but it was the best people. And uh, I was so gung-ho on jazz. I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, my junior and senior year, I lived in New York and commuted to New Jersey. I lived in Brooklyn. And I had only had school, I had school two days a week. So I was just doing sessions, having people come over to the house to play, going out sometimes to multiple places, you know, multiple clubs a night. And I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm here. I'm going to give this a shot. And I know... I had it in me to be great. You know, I've had a lot of insecurities about a lot of stuff in my life, but the one lingering thing in my soul was I knew I at least had the talent to be good or to be great, but talent has to be unlocked by hard work. So sometimes when people say you're so talented, I'm like, that's just the first step in the journey. Like, you're lucky if you have talent, but you really have to harness it. So I knew, always known that in me that I could do it, but... It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of, you know, breaking down personal barriers, just getting, you know, getting the gots to come and go to sessions and sit in and know you're not going to sound your best and introduce yourself to people. And people in the jazz world, they call it vibing. A lot of people will give you a real stank-ass attitude <laughs> when you're new, new to the scene. Yeah, right. But you know what? Motherfuckers now are kind of wussies and complaining about all that shit. It's like you got to go through it. You got to get vibed to build up your skin to be thick enough to deal with the stuff that you're going to deal with in this business. So I would never be the person that vibed anybody because that's not in my nature at all. Um, 
but there's cats that are do it. You know, there's salty cats or there's dudes that are old school that just feel like you got to go through that in order to, you know, any stripes. Yeah, exactly. So I definitely earned my stripes on the scene and along the way, um, you know, became a lot less sensitive to like perceived slights or like people being mean. You know, I've had people threaten to kill me on the bandstand Wow. I've definitely had people play in band where like one of the band members just wouldn't talk to me or talk, you know, talk super down to me. And, you know, the music goes on. <laughs> Do you have any uh, best gig, worst gig kind of memories from that period? Oh, man. From that period, I got to dig deep. Um, well, OK, I haven't I have. Oh, actually, you know what? I have a best and worst experience story that was the same thing. So I was, so when I, um, I had known Avishai Cohen through friends of mine that we went to school with. He played in like a rock band with them and he had, we got to know each other and he was looking for a new pianist for his trio. And, uh, my friend Mark Juliana was already in the band and he was like, yo, you should check out Sam. So I had scored a gig through friends of mine at Haverford College. Um, and Avishai was like, oh, down to do it. It was almost like an audition. So Haverford's two hours from New York in Philadelphia suburbs. So we go down there. It's dope. They have like, you know, a bunch of food for us, you know, booze. It's like a college basement party. So it's just the vibe is dope. And the gig went great. And so I had a feeling that, that might have meant I was in the band. So that was like a super high. You know, he was super stoked about it. And we played some of his music. We played like an arrangement I had done. So that was, you know, an ecstatic feeling. Um, And it set off a three-year working relationship. We did three records. You know, I was able to buy an apartment from touring that gig. And um, we went. uh, So then we're driving home. So this is just some New York shit, like... This is the worst drive home I've ever had. So we're driving back. So Mark lived in like some in like an area of New Jersey that just like wasn't that close to the freeway that we were taking. So we leave at probably 1 a.m. And the other guys are probably drunk. So I mean, I don't drive drunk. So get drive him. I'm like getting lost. It's mad dark. Finally get him into his place in Jersey. Then go into New York. So obviously I lived on the Upper West Side. So we're driving, I get into the city, and the West Side Highway, this is 3 in the morning in New York on a Saturday. The West Side Highway is just stopped dead. There's no one moving. We get out of the car. It's that bad. I'm like, motherfucker, I've been driving for so long. I was so tired. I wanted to stay in Philly. So finally, the West Side Highway like starts kind of moving takes like 45 minutes finally get to his house then and I live in Brooklyn so I got to go back downtown and over the Williamsburg Bridge so then I cross town to take the FDR which is the east side highway of Manhattan it's so fucking backed up that people are driving in reverse <laughs> on on the FDR this is four in the morning up. it's like both the west side highway and the and the FDR were like mayhem you know and I've I've done that before I've driven in reverse in New York you know, people drive reverse off of a ramp. It's a wild west in a lot of places there with driving. So then I drive, I have to drive local all the way home. 
Then I'm I get back to my place. There's no parking, and I have to unload my Fender Rhodes just by myself, which weighs over a hundred pounds, probably. Maybe may, if I'm lucky, it weighs eighty pounds, but I'm pretty sure it weighs over a hundred. So I'm dragging that shit into the house. Then go find a parking spot like 5.30 a.m. But still, after all that, was stoked because I knew that that gig could lead to something good. I feel like that's almost a microcosm of the music business. It's like you can have extreme highs, but then just go through the most life resistance possible. And you just still have to endure. Like that, you know, shit like that. I dealt with, I had a car once that I got hit and run by a police officer in my car. I got a car that the, it was in the shop and they kept it for four months. They were driving it all over. Just like random life shit like that, that now I'm in LA, I never take anything for granted. Every day I'm thankful. I'm like, man, I don't have to do this. And when I didn't have a car, you know, for years I was on the train till three, four in the morning, taking two, three trains with my equipment. So... Um, I know that was a little bit longer of an answer to the question of worst, best gig experience, but I think it just goes to the nature of the yin and yang of the, the music world. Um, you can have one amazing experience coexisting with some really rough stuff. It definitely goes to illustrate that kind of the duality and also I guess the way that you, like you say, you need to earn your stripes as well as develop that thick skin to exist in a creative industry and in an industry that does tend to eat a lot of people up and spit them out. Oh yeah. And that was, that's always what I'm having in mind when I share stuff about the business. I want people to know what's up and I want people, if they're going to do it just to have that thick skin. Um, because otherwise you're just going to be, you know, so sensitive and you're going to just be like constantly in turmoil and probably get out of the business. Now, obviously there's a lot of attrition. It's not for everybody, but whenever I share stuff, there's an underlying feeling of like, know what you're getting into. And, but you know what, as much as you could tell somebody anecdotes, you really don't develop that thick skin until you do it yourself. Um, but I have one of my concepts actually within my career has been from early age. I want to learn as much from other people's mistakes as possible. So I don't make those mistakes. Um, I know I'm going to make a lot of my own mistakes and learn from them. But if you can learn from people that, you know, that are a little further along that share knowledge that you, who you trust, then you're going to be ahead of the game because you don't have to make every mistake yourself. Yeah, it's in theory, it's time saved, hopefully. Exactly. It's time saved and, you know, maturity earned. Because the more you learn how to listen and accept what people, you know, what people that you respect tell you, uh, you're just going to advance faster, you know, instead of being stubborn and, and eventually realizing that you've been holding yourself back. So while you were touring with uh, with Avishai, uh at what point did you start to, I guess, develop your songwriting voice? I know you mentioned that you did a composition that you played at that, that gig that you were speaking about before. At what point did you really start to develop that voice uh, as a songwriter that's kind of led you to, to where you are now? Um, good question. I started out writing jazz songs. So initially, 
I mean, that was my first foray into writing. 15, 16, I started writing. And by uh, I was 17 and 18, I was writing a lot. And my teacher was a very well-known jazz teacher in Chicago, Alan Swain. Um, but he was also a guy that had figured out how to make money in music. He had run his own wedding band. He had a very successful piano school. You know, he. So his thing was you need to be practicing a bunch of stuff every day. Your playing needs to be at a super high level. He's like, but eventually you will want to make money. So, you know, as a side note, he was talking about gigs when he was, when it, when it was like the fifties and sixties in Chicago, he was making a hundred dollars on gigs and people are still making a hundred dollars on gigs today. Well, no inflation. So, no inflation, you know, I, j- that's just another thing for people to know. Meanwhile, cost of living goes up and I mean, there's gigs that are paying less than that. I try not to do them. Um, and I don't really do, I do know the value of myself, but still sometimes you just take a local gig. If you feel like doing it, it doesn't pay that much. And most guys playing local and girls playing local gigs, they're making that. So they're making what people were making in the fifties. So to keep it moving, Swain was always like, you need to be writing. And he's like, and your writing is really good. The melodies are really strong. So though I was writing more complicated jazz stuff, I always had in my head that people people always remembered my jazz songs. And jazz musicians really aren't that concerned a lot of times with m- melodic stuff. They like into, you know, if it's got cool changes or complicated, but the fact that like people I worked with would be singing my songs, talking about my songs, I was like, okay, I know in my head that I'll stick with this. So as my interests shifted to being more into pop music and um, I really got into it via the hip hop and urban music world, uh, the stuff that was going on around that time. The Neptunes were hot and producing a lot of stuff with interesting changes. Justin Timberlake's first album came out. Some of the 50 Cent stuff, Jay-Z, the Black Album, uh, Beyonce's first album, A. Marie. So those artists were like doing stuff where there was cool chord changes and, the, you know, the beats were great. So I started, after having years of just listening to jazz, I started getting into it and was like, okay, and so that was 2003, 2004. So I bought a, a sequencing keyboard and started producing very basic tracks. And that's when I started really writing more pop stuff. I had a partnership with Sarah Versprill, who's now of the band Pure Bathing Culture. And we had a project where we co-wrote everything. And there's a, a duo band called Sam and Josh who became very close friends of mine who were like great songwriters and they knew how to record themselves. So I started doing stuff with them and just learning, you know, learning how to even do it. And, you know, I had friends that gave me encouragement, but stark, uh, you know, stark commentary. Like my friend Josh, he was like, look, I, you know, I think some of the stuff you're writing is good. Some of it's you know not really that good. And, you know, just if you want to do this, keep going. Because he already, he respected me as a keyboard player. So I think some people were surprised that I was interested in doing that. Um, and, you know, another friend of mine who had a major record deal at the time, she was like, you know, stuff's pretty good. Just keep working at it. And then my first meeting with a publisher, I met with um, the Royalty Network in New York. 
And I still, I actually, I know people that work with them and I always tell them, please tell the guy, thank you. I don't want to say his name, but I'm always like, please tell him, thank you. Cause we had a meeting and I played him my, uh, you know, CD of like my demo songs. And I had like paid people to help me record them and stuff. Listens to him, you know, very un- unenthusiastic reaction. It wasn't mean, but. I had brought his copy of the CD to leave for him. And he keeps, he kept telling me, make sure you take your CD. Like he said that multiple times. He didn't even want to be the one to have to throw it away. He didn't want it in his office. So I've gotten along the way, as I started, I got some good, you know, good, cold, hard feedback. I had another close friend of mine, listen to it and go on for 45 minutes about how it was whack and all this other stuff. So, but I, by the time I was, you know, 25-ish years old, I was deep into, into doing the pop uh, writing stuff. And what was your expectation when you, when you started to uh, immerse yourself in that in terms of where you saw it going, both in terms of artistically and financially? Artistically, I really wanted to have a hot record that, you know, that spoke to people, but that was also a hit. Like whenever I would go to clubs that played like the, you know, hit music of the day, I never wanted to dance. I would just listen and be like, I could do this shit, you know? And I'm, and I'm inspired by this to do my own stuff. That is this. And I knew that people were making money. I mean, it wasn't hard to, to just see, you know, especially in hip hop, it was so flossy of a culture. And a lot of that is BS and flossing is like when you show off and get jewelry and all this stuff like that. But a lot of producers were getting money. And I knew anecdotally, and again, a lot of these things are anecdotally, or you read one thing, one place and another thing, another place. But, um, you know, people like Scott Storch, who was a hot producer, one of the hottest producers at the time, getting a hundred to hundred fifty thousand dollars a song. The Neptunes were in that same range, and sometimes that was stuff they that was just the label bought the beat from them, and they might not have even used it. Um, it's crazy. And yeah, nowadays even big producers, unless you're the 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 A list number one producer, which is only a few people, even like people with major songs. They're not getting paid generally in advance. They're they're mainly getting their fee if the song go you know, if the song gets taken by the label. Now, you know, producers have day rates and they'll charge for their studios, but you know, the average producer in music today is doing everything on spec. And they get their fee if the label decides to use the song. So that's another th- important th- this is a kind of a tangent, but that's another important thing for people to know is that, you know, you're going to be doing a lot of work on spec, a.k.a. for free, until, you know, you hopefully land a placement. So there's producers, say a producer has two, three good placements in a year. All the other stuff they did, they did, pride in pay. Um, anyway, so in that, in back to like the 2005 days, you saw what the major producers were getting. And so you figure that the guys just under them were still getting, you know, 50, 75 grand a song. Tony Braxton's 
uh, wrote about working with Irv Gotti, who was founded Murder Inc. Records and discovered Ashanti and worked with Ja Rule and stuff. But he was also a producer for Outside Artist. And in her book, she said he was getting $200,000 a song. So just think about that. That was there. That carrot was there um, on the stick. Now, I knew a lot less about publishing then. I had read some books, so I didn't know exactly how much like stuff paid when it was on the radio or, or the whole licensing world. That That's really exploded now with all the online media and Netflix and stuff. But I just knew that for producer fees and for royalties at that time, if you had some big records, like you could make some real scratch. We'll be right back with the interview in just a second, friends. But as this year is beginning to wind up, I wanted to ask you a pertinent question. Are you looking to make 2019 a year where you're far more organized? Do you feel like all of your thoughts are kind of... Um like circling around your head and you're not really sure what to do with them. You're not really sure how to move forward or kind of organize them. You've tried all the apps, all the planners, all the systems, and nothing's really worked. Well, there's this guy out there whose name is Ryder Carroll, and he's come up with this amazing system called the Bullet Journal. The Bullet Journal combines all of the elements of a wish list, a to-do list, and a diary, and I can tell you it's going to change the way that you organize your life through tracking your past, ordering your present, and planning for your future. The bullet journal really helps you to identify what matters and set goals accordingly. So, if you're looking to start 2019 on the right foot, check out this essential guide to tracking your past, organizing your present, and planning for your future. For all the information, hit up bulletjournal.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. At what point did you start to see your work translating into, into dollars? In the late 2000s, I had been producing a bunch and um, I finally had some product. You know, I had collaborated with other people, but I finally had some product that was playable. You know, I put, we put up a MySpace page and I was able to send it. And so there was a summer where I had like three production projects. And, um, you know, I made some, some pretty good money from producing that summer. Then the economy crashed in 2008 and, you know, everyone was affected by that. The music business isn't always as affected as other things. But so I found myself having less work at that time. But then I started a group Palter Ego with Jesse Palter, who's still one of my closest friends and she's a, a vocalist and songwriter. So we started writing our own stuff. I wasn't producing for like outside artists, but then our music started to get licensed um, and we've had songs licensed a number of times. And um, then so that was like my first like significant publishing money that I would get from like BMI. And I, by significant, I mean, you know, a few hundred bucks um, here, you know, quarterly, depending on what we had, you know, if we had gotten good placements. And, you know, we had like commercials. We had a national commercial for, you know, a couple years. We had. Uh, stuff on the radio, not our song playing on the radio, but like in radio commercials, stuff like that. T- a couple TV shows. Um, that was the first taste. And then I started writing with an artist named Robin McKell, great vocalist and writer. And she's, she's, she's big in France. She's from America, but she's like a festival headliner in France. And we wrote some stuff for her album. And... A lot of it I had like one song I had 100% of the publishing, one or two I had 50, 
the uh, probably the least I had on any of those songs was like 33%. So even though it wasn't a huge record, some of the songs got played a bunch on the radio in Europe. And that adds up, especially if you have 100% of the songs. So then I made some money off that. And then, you know, but the first real situation where I made real money was The Man. And, you know, for your listeners in the UK, that was a number one pop hit in the UK. It was top 10 in the US and it got licensed a ton. And it came, it started being on a Beats by Dre commercial. And then the label started, decided to put it to radio. Because, you know, they labels always pay to get songs on the radio. Some other shit people should know. But it didn't go to radio for months after it was released. Of course, the label probably didn't believe in the song. But when it got the placement in the Beats by Dre commercials, it just started exploding. And then it was like, I think it went platinum before they even put it on radio, which is interesting. Um, What's the process of writing a song with someone like Aloe Black um, versus where, where you sort of started from? The process, well, you know, where I started from has prepared me for this you know, for this day, for everything that, that I've had to do since, um, knowing how to play the piano and play a lot of different styles and to channel different influences and just let it come out as something that sounds, you know, like a mix of that with modern pop that comes from me playing, you know, thousands of gigs, learning tons of different music and learning my sounds and learning just how to do stuff stylistically different. So, um, when we got in with Aloe, you know, he has a bunch of different ideas of stuff he wants to hear. And uh, DJ Khalil, who produced the track, he is always amazing at picking cool sounds. But so say he picks a harpsichord sound, I need to be able to play that kind of like you would play a harpsichord within the context of a pop song. But there's certain things you do on harpsichord that you're not going to do the same as a piano or as a Fender Rhodes, like for example, harpsichord doesn't sustain some of the sounds, um, you know, some of the sounds they have now that are like synths, they, they, the sustain pedal works on them, but it also as harpsichord. It's one volume when you play it, it does not, it doesn't vary in volume by how you hard you hit the key. So stuff like that really prepared me. So for doing the man, we, we used a harpsichord sound, um, you know, we did a bunch of stuff. And also, I'm very thematic with my chord progressions. Like, there's always a melody in behind what I do, even if I'm just writing a very simple progression. Like, the top note of the progression or a little melody I have on top guides how I write. And so, the intro to The Man and really a recurring theme of the the music under the, the hook of the song, it's that melody. And that was the... There's actually... I remember listening back to a recording of how we started. It's me and Daniel Seif who was doing bass and guitar and we're like futzing around and we like come, you know, we like get to this point where it's the dun, 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 dun. It was cool to go back and listen to that. It was very like, you know, from scratch, just like noodling until we caught something. So everything I had done up to that point musically helped me in that situation and helps me in all situations like that. Because uh, I really prefer to work from scratch with artists. And the fact that I can draw from a ton of different influences or they can be like, we need something like this. Or I've been listening to this thing. 
and I can almost always play something in that style and work from there, it's very advantageous. A lot of producers just do tracks in advance and artist comes in and they just pick from a track that's already there. And, um, you know, they don't really have a choice about changing it. Oh, wow. I didn't, I always just assumed that music would start from a place of kind of, uh, scratch, like you say, or all, all sort of tunes that start that way, but no, that's not, that is really not the case in, in most cases. Um, it can be great to do, to do stuff that way if the artist gets inspired, but, um, I mean, music starts from scratch at some point, but in terms of songwriting sessions or sessions with artists and songwriters, yeah, a lot of the time it's pre-made tracks. Right. So is it a similar process when you're working with Kendrick Lamar and and Macy Gray, people like that, as it was with Aloe Black? Yeah. So Kendrick was two different ways, I would say. the, The first... Um, well, I had done a track, so I've worked on two songs with him. One was institutionalized and both were produced by Rocky. He was a dope producer. It's a good friend of mine. Rocky and I were just like getting together, working on ideas. This was January. This is over a year before To Pimp a Butterfly came out. And I just started jamming on the keys. And probably the first thing that I started playing was the chord progression for institutionalized and it has that little melody in there. And, you know, Rocky was like, that's dope. And then, you know, a month or two later, he played me the beat he made out of it. You know, he arranged it and it was weird, but it was cool. And he said, Kendrick loved it. And so that, that was done and then played for Kendrick. So, um, we did do a session where everyone was in the room where we recorded like the clarinet and the strings but that was an example of like sending somebody a beat and then them liking it. But when we did I, um, that was totally from scratch in the room. Kendrick had called us in, um, you know, via Rocky. He organized, you know, a band of people to come in. And Kendrick sat us down. He's like, yo, people have been, you know, trying to do this like mixing live shit, live like real funk musicianship with with hip hop. He's like, that's what we're going to be doing. Like he had a real vision. And so we spent six days first trying to write something in the style of that lady by the Ozzy brothers. And then we ended up having to come back and Kendrick was like, look, I just, we just need to redo that lady. It's too much of what I'm hearing. Uh, Out of that, we, we did about 20, 21 other uh, original ideas. Uh, None of them made the album, but so it was, it was a combination of both with Kendrick with Macy. It's mostly been from scratch or I'll work with, um, my, uh, good friend, Royal Z, who's a producer who, who's worked with Macy for years. Usually we come up with ideas. I'll just do like some chord progressions and lay a few parts. And then he's the guy that likes to take his time and really craft a dope ass track. Or he'll just write with with songwriters just to a chord progression, and then he'll go back and produce it later. So probably, I don't remember everything. Probably Macy was like mostly from scratch, but there might have been a time where like Z arranged something that we did, played it for her, they wrote it together, and then he produced around it. Um, So 
it is a mix depending on if I'm working with another producer or if I'm working on myself, like by myself. DJ Khalil loves to do shit from scratch. That being said, he also has a crazy amount of amazing beats lying around. Um, but he's really into doing stuff from scratch. Other producers I know maybe are, maybe aren't. It's um, and I love doing stuff from scratch when I'm producing or or co-producing um i i prefer it because for two reasons one because you can catch a moment uh while you're all in the room starting something creatively that can feel really special as opposed to writing to a track that you can sometimes get a special feeling from that but i get more of a special feeling from creating from scratch and feeling everyone's energy and the other the other thing is that usually an artist will be way more attached to a song that they were in the room creating from the beginning as opposed to either a song that was sent to them fully or partially written or a track that was sent to them. So it's like people generally connect more to stuff when you do it from scratch. And you've got this new album that you've uh, that you've just been putting together that's uh, based on the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and about the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. What was the kind of, yeah, how, how did you draw sort of inspiration for that and what was the process of putting that together? So that was, um, I was approached by uh, a couple of curators at the Skirball Center, which is a museum and a Jewish cultural center in um, West Los Angeles. It's right off the 405 freeway in this like little inlet of land. So I don't even know what neighborhood to call it. It might be Bel Air. It might be, you know, West LA, whatever. I went to a, uh, I went to a Muppet exhibition there earlier this year. Oh yeah. They had the Jim Henson Henson thing. Exactly. She said it was, they told me it was crazy popular. I didn't make it to that one. I've gone to their last few exhibits there. So anyway, Skirball approached me. They're like, you know, it was right after the election of Donald Trump and, um, Personally, Donald Trump's values are not in alignment with mine uh, without getting too uh, political on this podcast. And they are not <laughs> not in alignment with the values of the curators at the Skirball, the, the particular curators at the Skirball Center that approached me. And kind of in light of that and a lot of sense of crisis involving the Supreme Court for people that do prefer a progressive Supreme Court. Um. They were like, you know, we have this exhibit planned on uh, based on the book, The Notorious RBG and the Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And would you be down to do music uh, specifically for the exhibit? And I was like, yeah, you know, and they're like, basically, like, do whatever you want to do, um, you know, more or less make it like the length of how long somebody it would take somebody to walk through the exhibit. That was like kind of my only guideline. So I started thinking, now they had, in the Roy Lichtenstein exhibit, which I had gone to, they had Kamasi Washington's album playing, which is instrumental, and he didn't custom do it for the exhibit, but they, like, used it, and they had a little, like, plaque in there saying it was his album. So I was like, it could be an instrumental thing, but then I was thinking, you know what, this could, as I started doing research, I was like, this could be way bigger than that, and it could turn into something uh, great, and it's a good cause to get people to come collaborate. So, cause my, my thought is I'm, you know, as much as I'm a very, 
I'm an even, like, I don't judge people by their status in life type of person. The reality of the music business is you have a pecking order based on how people perceive you, what you've done, whether people respect you as more of a musician or a musician writer or as a producer or you've had multiple hits or like the what have you done for me lately thing. So, I, you know, I know where I'm at and I'm cool with, I'm, you know, I'm aiming to move as high as I can go. I don't judge people below me, above me, whatever. But my point is that if you want to approach somebody who's like higher on the pecking order, quote unquote, than you, you always want to bring them something to the table. It annoys me to no end when people who like, you know, maybe aren't even really like good writers or aren't in the scene at all. Hit me up. Yo, let's write. Cool. Do you have a project to write for? No. Let's just make some money. Yeah. Let's do, you know, basically hook me up with your shit. Um, which was also another reason I put up that post. Cause I'm like, you might be scrounging on me to throw you some opportunities, but you ain't going to make any money doing, I'm doing 99% of it. But so I come at people that are, you know, more established than me with something. If I want to work with them, I bring an opportunity and then it's much more likely that they'll want to do it. And it also doesn't paint me as some sort of a sycophant social climber, which I never want anybody to think of me. So I approached some people that were really some really established writers and artists. And I was like, I have this project people I already had a relationship with. And I was like, I have this project. Would you be down? And most of them said, fuck yeah. And um, so I got Justin Tranter involved, who's like two time BMI songwriter of the year and a huge advocate for all types of under, you know, marginalized communities he's very involved with the uh lgbtq community i've done some shows with him for that anyway so he signed a trans artist named shia diamond crazy story and um so shia did a song that we all co-wrote justin dan crean and shia and i aloe did a song amber lou who's like a major k-pop star but she's american so she's like branching back into doing american stuff she did a song Harry Mack, who's blowing up as a rapper, did a song. There, there's a bunch of great people involved. And um, as it progressed, I was like, is it going to be six songs, seven? And then as it just grew, I was like, you know what? I have more ideas for this. And in a couple cases, it, I did songs, like just did a writing session for a song for whatever purpose. And then I was like, this could be good for this project. So it expanded to being 11 songs. And um, at that point, I was like, you know what? There's a lot of great people involved. And the message is, is, you know, I feel is excellent. It's not preachy. You know, it's not super. It's not like corny. You know, that was a huge goal of mine. If you do an album with a message like that, you want to make sure it's not like literal always. And you want to make sure that it's still good music. And not a bunch of complaining or like just talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg literally. So a couple of things mention her name, but basically it's inspired by her, her life, what she stands for, and other issues, constitutional issues in America. Um, So as it got completed, I was like, you know what? This deserves a bigger life than just being in a museum. And so then I decided... I talked, you know, with the people I collaborated with. So now we're going to do a, a fundraising campaign to do a proper publicity campaign. And we're going to release the album on vinyl and we're going to, you know, really go for it. And the nice thing is there's a couple of artists on there. 
aside from the established ones that are really starting to break now. Like Amber Lou just did her first successful U.S. tour as a headliner, sold out everything. Harry Mack is about to release his album. Christine Gordon, one of the feature vocalists, has a top 15 dance hit in the U.K. now. So like it's and then, of course, the relevance of the Supreme Court now with the whole Kavanaugh hearing debacle and Ruth Bader Ginsburg being old and having just broke, uh, you know, or fell and injured herself, but came back to work. There's just a lot of that stuff in people's minds and, and you know, converging stuff that I would have, I never have planned that way. You know, I didn't know two years ago, the whole, um, you know, attention the Supreme court would be getting and, or that these artists were going to be really coming into their own. So I feel like excited to release it. And I feel a responsibility to all the collaborators to give their contributions a shot to get noticed. And also I want to mention that almost everybody on the record uh, recorded themselves and sent me the files. It was a real collaboration uh, countrywide. And I'm a huge advocate for anybody who's an artist or a songwriter to learn how to record yourself because it'll just give you so many more opportunities. If I had to record all the songs in my studio, it would have taken me just way more time. And a lot of times I worked on this project that like, you know, midnight after I had done a full day of other work in the studio, various sessions. And, um, so extra props to the people, the artists who recorded themselves because, uh, you know, it made it really a true collaboration and it made it, it helped this project actually exist. Yeah. I think, uh, I think as a, as a, an artist, probably in any, uh, discipline, the, the more, I don't want to say autonomous you can be, but I think the more that you can, um, the, the more kind of hurdles or barriers you can remove from being able to collaborate with people, i.e. being able to record yourself or being able to write or, or whatever it is, um, the more chance you have of being able to find success. 100%. That's something I also always advocate. I'm I'm a person just from my training. I can do a lot of different stuff in music. My training and the fact that I practiced a lot. You know, I can play a keyboard bass, so I can do a gig where I can be the bassist and the pianist. Get a lot of work doing that. I can, um, you know, I can play jazz. I can play straight up pop. I know how to program keyboard sounds. I know how to record. I know how to use Pro Tools, Ableton, and Logic. And I did a session a couple months ago where I had to use all of them in the session. Um, and uh, I know how to use Melodyne well. I know how to produce and program uh, drums. And I know how to play keys and I know how to sing background vocals and do and produce vocals and write harmonies. So it's like I've developed a lot of skills that I use frequently and you know, I this year is my 15 year anniversary of earning a full-time living as a musician. From the day I graduated college, I was doing it. But I put in the work and I've always tried to attack my weaknesses. So I I tell people, you know, you should learn as many skills as you can. You'll be more valuable. Now, some people are just limited. You know, I don't believe you should think you're limited, but some people are just not going to do certain stuff. They're just not going to, you know, they're not going to learn how to record or they're not going to become super versatile on an instrument. 
you know, that's fine. But with whatever skill base that you have and that you feel you can improve upon, do it. It makes everyone's life easier. You know, I don't, I'm happy to share credit or some money with somebody if they can, you know, if they can record and produce vocals on their own. Yeah. Get them paid as a vocal producer. Get them, you know, get them paid as a dope background singer. Uh, I don't care. You know, it just saves time. It's, it's everybody, everybody gets to, you know, get more stuff done. Musicians, most, most musicians I know that are in the studio world do know how to record themselves. I got to say, uh, it's more common than not. It's unfortunately vocalists that are much less likely to be able to record themselves and, you know, take power, you know, have that power. Don't be a, don't be beholden to others you as a as a vocalist and especially in this business as a female i always advocate have as much you know as many skills and as much power as you can because then you can't be taken advantage of by people a lot of times women aren't respected as much as men aren't even thought of as people that could record themselves or that even know anything and i'm totally against that way of thinking um, but the best way to change it is to boss up and be like, you know, yeah, fuck you. I'm recording myself and my shit's going to sound dope and I'm going to deliver and I'm just as good as a dude. And you can start to call me for more technical stuff or, or whatever because I have the skills to do it. So I'm a big advocate of, of trying to get women more involved just because there's so many talented women and a lot of times they feel uh, they don't see the role models of females doing what they want to do so they don't you know, they don't pursue it because you don't have like an archetype to follow. And the more women that, that really get in, um, you know, get opportunities and show what they can do, the more women will get involved and women give a great perspective to things, you know, they're, they're half of the human population. Um, but you know, that being said, a lot of women are trying to break down the barriers and I try to support them as much as possible. At what point did you, you know, be speaking sort of at the beginning, we're talking about the kind of financial realities of where being a songwriter is today. We're speaking a little bit before about what your expectations were when you began. At what point did you um, did you realize what the status quo was? I suppose around 2014 to now, uh, going back to the financial realities um, where we began. At what point did you kind of acquiesce or uh, surrender to that as the reality of being a songwriter? You know, I never ask other producers what fees they get. I know that some of the guys I work with are amazing and they're whatever they get, they're worth it. Um, But I don't, you know, I don't pry into people's business like that. So I didn't find out about the producer fees until I started getting, uh, you know, placements as a producer. And those can vary. They obviously vary depending on if it's a major or a minor label. But, you know, you can still get paid being a producer. That's a good um, – because it's upfront money. So, anyway, that I got really much more familiar with over the last couple of years as I've, you know, increased my producer work. Songwriting-wise, once I started getting a lot of cuts on – you know, on records and, and, you know, you see the royalty statements and I look at the statements. So that's when I realized the reality and what always stuck out to me 
was that satellite radio, which is Sirius XM in this country, um, Pandora and Pandora, especially pay. It's like useless how much they pay. It's just totally useless. <laughs> um, they, in my opinion, I mean, I like the service. I like, uh, satellite radio uh, the quality sucks but like my wife has it in her car like i i like the concept but i would not care if they just went away you know they pay they didn't even pay for pre-1972 recordings at all until the music modernization act passed think about that that means that their fucking 1970s station their 1960s station their 1950s station and their 1940s station well part of the 1970s station but for their main, for the first stations on the dial, they're not even paying anything for. Like fuck that, yeah, and fuck their that. their rates are terrible that they pay. Um, some of the interview shows are cool, and Pandora it was great for a while, but fuck you, pay me. That's my, <laughs> you know, that's my stance. I don't use Pandora. I love Spotify, and I actually advocate. <laughs> um, streaming is great for artists, not good for songwriters, but it's a great way for artists to find out about stuff. And I do want to say that Spotify, specifically because I've worked with them, they do a lot to help develop artists and expose artists. But the stance of them from the people I know there is like, look, we know we're going to have to pay more to publishers, but basically we're bound by law. We don't. It, the law sets the rates, so they don't have to pay more. No one's going to pay more for something than they legally have to. So in that way, you can understand that the streaming companies aren't the boogeyman. They're just part of they're just the landscape now anyway yeah when the statement started coming is when i started really feeling the realities and also just reading articles you know none of this information is secret you see that pharrell made you know almost nothing on happy on it was some you know there was a figure i, I don't want to quote it exactly but, you know <laughs> He made a he made a bunch of money yeah on like radio play and licensing and probably it sold physical downloads because that was a few years ago and people still bought them. Um, Lady Gaga has quotes the same thing you know people are making like less than ten thousand dollars on like hundreds of millions of streams, um, and uh, also I did notice a change from twenty thirteen on to today in just physical sales going down. You know, physical and even physical even just means buying the album digitally on iTunes or Amazon or whatever. The difference between 2013 when The Man came out and, um, you know, even when Kendrick's album came out uh, in 2015 where people were buying the physical copies versus today where most of it is streaming. Um, it's a big difference. That That's really one of the major differences in the streaming era is the physical sale royalty versus streaming. So that, that also became a stark reality to me. And, uh, you know, it'll continue to evolve. The rates are going to go up, uh, about 47%. So again, that means if you're going to get around 50 grand for a platinum streaming song, that'll go up to 75 grand. So it's not a life-changing difference, but it is a difference. And then the Music Modernization Act is going to allow the rate courts, which set the rates, to take into account modern technology and what they decide the rates are. So there's stuff on the horizon. And, you know, um, 
my friends and, and the people I work with, we're all optimistic. We're, we're getting, you know, we're getting into other aspects of stuff like film and, and developing artists. And there, there's a lot of positivity there. So, you know, know, know what you're getting into, but also if you're in it, maintain a positive attitude. That's, that's always my thing. And, um, when people read my post, some people took a pessimistic view about it, but that's why I wrote a follow-up and really clarified that I do have a good attitude. And then I've talked to a bunch of people about it in person and people like, man, you know, most people got it, but some people process shit differently, partially because they wanted to be a songwriter and they're like, you know, this cat must be making a lot of money. And then they're like, man, I'm not even in the game right now. Like, there's no way I'm going to make any money doing this. Um, but, you know, ultimately people process it and then you move on and you, you realize you're going to keep doing music because it's your path or, you know, you can bail. There's plenty of other people out here that's going to keep doing it. And so how, you know, as someone who's played on multiple Grammy Award winning uh, songs and albums, you know, having, as I said, collaborated with these amazing artists, um, even some of the people that you've played with, you know, down to Stevie Wonder, Tom Jones, um, Bruno Mars, how do you look at or or define uh, the success of, of your music uh, in this day and age? You know, success is a, is a funny thing. Um, you can get wrapped up in measuring success by money, but in, in reality, I've known this all along. I mean, the music business, some of the best people don't make a lot of money but their albums could still be legendary. The stuff they've worked on could be legendary. So I know I have to make a living, but I'm going to judge success on how the music impacts people. Like if you have a big record, even nowadays, if you're not making a lot of money off it, it's still a big record. People are partying to it. People are listening to it when they do this or that. People are getting emotionally touched by stuff. As an artist, you know, Really, we do create for our own artistic expression, but as art intersects commerce, you do want some outside validation that your music is reaching people and also that it can earn you a living. Um, so I guess I measure success about being able to do it, being happy with what you're doing, and making music that is recognized as quality stuff that affects people. And then if you have to do other random stuff to make money, like... I also consider success in music doing stuff that serves a purpose for the greater world, whatever it is. So I donate my services to a number of charities, um, you know, outreach to kids, um, also even just doing private events and stuff. Like if you're playing at somebody's birthday or their wedding, like, that's a major thing to them. I've played at people's weddings and they like hit me up. You're so amazing. That was like the best version of this song ever. Now, was it the best version of that song ever? No, but for them, they were getting married. It was, it was special. And if you can provide that to people, that's also success. I think in life, because as long as you open yourself up to that way of thinking, um, it's very rewarding. Now, a lot of people just judge success on money and that, that can lead to some internal, I think some cognitive dissonance or it can just leave you vulnerable, so vulnerable to like ups and downs of financial success um, that 
it's not going to satisfy you overall. Now, you know, that being said, I want to make some cheese because that's what it you have to do in life. You know, the bills don't stop. But I'm not going to measure it on just financial. And also because I can't control where stuff's at now. I can't control streaming rates. I can't control how the government sets the amount that we can get paid. All I can control is making dope music. Absolutely. Well, Sam, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me and being uh, so open, uh, not only with me, but, you know, in social media terms and just in a broader sense with, uh, I think, informing especially uh, young or up-and-coming people um, about what the reality is of, you know, endeavouring for a life in, uh, in music. Um, finish all of my conversations with the same question, which is, what makes you silly? Oh, man, I'm always making puns and stuff, and uh, I'm always cracking jokes, but I know that a lot of them are terrible. So it's just about the, uh, you know, the consistency you find. It's like writing songs, you find some good shit. But, yeah, that's silly. Sometimes I say shit that's just super <laughs> silly. But it also, like, I don't, you know, I don't take myself that seriously in that way. I take music seriously, but I think it just shows people that I'm willing to, like, be embarrassed. But as, like, one girl um, years ago that I, like, dated had said, Sam has no capacity to be embarrassed. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a, a small capacity, but not not that much. So I imagine- that's silly about me. I imagine something like that would have set you in good stead when you were beginning in New York and jumping up in all those sessions and and stuff. Yeah, and I I, I think I was had I had the much stronger capacity to be embarrassed at that time, but part of just opening yourself up, throwing yourself into the fire, is you just you get toughened up to that, and you know you play for thousands of people. And you learn to be comfortable with that. It's like, and if you make a mistake on stage, you're just like, whatever, you just keep going. So that, that helps with that too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. To free these burdens My counterparts say I'm undeserving It's quite disturbing I curse the skin that I was birthed in Turn around and curse the country I put work in Servant, serving serpents Steady dreaming I'll catch master out back and murk them Dirt napping, irk them for certain But is my soul worth it? Only thing saving them is this church in I sing every Sunday service Oh, and I turn to the bourbon I keep behind the curtain So my kids don't know the evil's lurking My wife know deep down inside I'm a good person But when I'm off that sauce, she uncertain It's getting violent My family's living with the tyrant Where the time went, product of my environment I learned nothing but hate, violence and rape On this estate, try to escape my mistakes Dogs on the chase, quick at my pace No ace in the hole, just running with my fate in the balance If they catch me, I'ma bleed by the gallons I'm swinging from a tree like unk when I was three Your pops when I was ten, ain't no good luck Try again for the African to string you up like violins, but the pressure make diamonds. No looking back, they follow my tracks, pushing out on the gas, running through the grass, dirt, no shoes, no shirt, stepping on branches, can't see my hands, it's dark as the soul of my masters. Dogs making advances, my circumstances getting bad. Freedom ain't free when your skin is black. Tried to get free, maybe I shouldn't have. When that doubt creep in, fake tend to crack. That's when I felt the teeth go in my calf. My whole world flipped around and turned upside down. Looking up at my mask, you the fed up now. We only three fifths. Three fifths, oh man. Be your master's hand. I give a fuck about your master plan.
only three fifths. Three fifths of a man. Be by his master's hand. I give a about your master plan. Take a boy and put your robe around him. Rest assured, all that goes around comes The soul of my grandpa still live within me. Live with that fire inside, can't escape the frenzy. I fresh back from the war, I seen the deaths of many. So I drown all my sorrows inside these fists of Remy. Just give me one night free of mangled flesh, bayonets and threats. From bombs bursting in the air, it's hard to take breaths. I wake up in cold sweats. Wifey hold me down, ain't giving up on the boy yet. Just blew up the house that God built yesterday I just laid two of my good friends to rest today And you say, 13th Amendment? They was just pretending It's all a mirage, trying to beat the odds Can't vote for the laws, grandfather claws Put our liberties on, pause Close us off in the worst off Communities where they burn the cross Holds us off, let the dogs loose I don't expect them to call the truth So I'm falling up my fist Put it in the sky like this Put it to your eye like this If you insist, we just gonna die like this History defined like this Nah, no more speeches No more pledging allegiance To the greatest like eagles Man, I seen all the evils Carving tongues out, leaving the speechless Couching eyes out, then get tied down To the train tracks, where's the payback? Then we meet up at the sundown And discuss how we gonna take back Dignity and family they took from us That's when a mob kicked down the window shutters to confront us The whole world flipped around and turned upside down Looking dead at them bastards We only three-fifths Three-fifths of a man Being by his master's hand I give a fuck about your master plan Take a boy and put your rope around him And every time you vote they count him We only three-fifths Three-fifths of a man Master's hand, I give a about your master plan. Take a boy and put your robe around him. But rest assured, all that goes around comes back round. I blacked out to awaken, holding the wooden plank and gulf by fire and smoke, choking from all the mayhem emerged. The voice of a young man beneath the rubble, I turned to sir, he must be in trouble. The structure above him flirting to crumble. I put my arm out, yeah, and pulled him out from the underworld into the heavens. We stumbled out of the burning building together as brethren, the gathering of folks, not of my skin tone, what a waiters. His mother stepped forward, once over his son praising God, the angel.